Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Allison Jewell with her new book, Speaking Up, Understanding Language and Gender. Professor, how are you doing today? Oh, fine. It's good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you in uh, with the New Books Network today. And just to start out, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your academic background and sort of how you came to write this particular book on language and gender? Mm-hmm. Well, excellent question. Um, I started my career as a high school English teacher, and that was in the late 1980s when they were kind of changing the curriculum all over the place in regards to the weighting of final exams. And this was, um, there was more weighting going to class discussions. So I was paying more attention to class discussions and who was participating and who wasn't and how I could get them talking and how the talkers uh, could be silenced because they were talking too much. So I got curious about that and saw patterns that went along gender lines. So the boys were speaking more than the girls in the full class discussions. And somehow this this surprised me. I think I grew up thinking that women were the chatty ones. So when I saw this, I wondered if it was just this group of people, if it was my teaching techniques, if it was, you know, this culture. Um, and realized by reading more that I I was not alone in that realization and that there'd been a lot of studies that were uh, pursuing that line of questioning. So that was, that was my main interest in the area. And then when I went on to do my graduate work, I, I was looking, I was looking for gendered patterns in, in classroom behavior and the actual um, language being used in conversations, uh, how much was being spoken by which speaker and what that meant to the significance of the um, participation. So those are some of my early interests. And uh, when I got reading more and thinking more about it, it just got infinitely more and more interesting. Yeah. So for folks that are interested in gender studies broadly, but maybe haven't dipped fully into how language plays into uh, studying gender, why is language so important? when sort of uh, interacting with or examining gender? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, language reveals us in so many ways. Uh, What we say, how we say it, when we say it, tells us something about uh, what's going on. So change in language patterns reveal something is is changing. Here's a quick example. A hundred years ago, there was no such term uh, domestic abuse. But that didn't mean that domestic abuse wasn't happening. It most certainly was. Uh, And the awareness of that came alongside then the language to describe it. So we do know that language use changes with times. With the times, we we know that from watching how computer terminology has has, uh, come into everyday everyday language. Um, 
so in that in that way, language reveals us, but it also creates us so that the language that is being used around us, about us, starts to influence how we see things too. So I'm interested in linguistic space and in so much of the research I've looked at in public spaces, not in the small group discussions, but as much, but in the small, in the, in the large group discussions, I noticed that the boys in my high school classes were speaking more and saying more when they, when they spoke. And then I took that observation uh, into my university classes and, and saw a similar thing. Um, and so there's something that it does to us too, that if there's a talkative woman in the class, for example, Often people think of her as way, way too talkative. But if you actually measure the number of words she's spoken, often she has spoken significantly less than the male speakers. But because there's something that we expect from uh, men and from women, we hear her contributions very differently. Uh, Some of the classroom data I've uh, been looking into and finding really interesting here are the way the teacher often speaks to the class in gendered ways. So if the teacher asks the full class the question, what's the capital city of France? And a girl answers the question, Paris is the capital city of France. And the teacher says, yes, Mm -hmm. that's considered a positive reinforcement and good teacher practice. However, if you look at how it might go if the participant was was a boy so that the teacher's asking, um, what is the capital city of Canada? And a boy says, Ottawa. The teacher might say, positive feedback, yes, that's right. And then say something like, people think it's Toronto or even Montreal, but you're right, it's Ottawa. So it's a very subtle difference, but you can hear the number of words used in the interaction have um, been heard. And that invites more language to be spoken in response. Um, Other things we've been noticing in the research, uh, teachers don't necessarily use the girls' names in the same way they would use the boys' names, even if the boys are being naughty. So the teacher might say, Peter, be quiet. Peter, sit down. Girls, shh. Uh, When I've interviewed some some teachers about this, they'll often say, well, the, the girls are, they're good girls, they're nice, quiet girls, which just brings up the question, do we think of uh, girls and women as you know, nice um, when they're quiet? <laughs> and do they have to be quiet for us to think of them as, as you know, the right kind of, of girl or woman in, in a particular context? And so all of that started to influence my ideas and why I came to eventually write the book. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to speak a little bit about uh, the way that you wrote the book itself and sort of how that language uh, plays into this larger discussion. So, you know, I found your book, you know, very readable and very accessible. And unfortunately, in academic work, that's not always the case. Um, and, and I kind of put it as sometimes uh, academics write uh, their research up uh, in a convoluted for publication sake sort of way. <laughs> um, so I, I think that uh, did you have that in mind when writing this book on language to make it sort of less uh, sort of, you know, the $15 GRE vocab words sort of way? Yeah, definitely. That was exactly my, my hope for the book. And I'm glad that 
that you experienced it that way, that um, I felt that the field needed an accessible text. Um, and I do think that gender, the issue of gender, gender studies belongs to men and women. <laughs> and so often it's tucked away in a women's studies program that gives, you know, gives the impression that it's about uh, just women when, you know, we're all in it together and uh, we don't live on different planets, um, Venus and Mars. We're, we have so much um, that we have to figure out together on, on this. So the accessibility was a, d- a deliberate hope that it would engage more people in some of the discussions. And, and it's been interesting watching the field just even in the last five years, um, how language has sort of become a way that others are noticing for example, um, the C. Jane organization uh, sponsored some research on wh- how many words are spoken in Disney films based on gender and found that, yeah, sure enough, there are more words spoken in a Disney film by the male characters than the female characters, even when the film is about a female character. Or other movies like Pretty Woman, which is about you know the Julia Roberts character, she does speak significantly less than uh, Richard Gere speaks, and that's that that's you could say well that means nothing, but I think it means something. It's something about um, who we see as significant, who we want to hear from, um, and our understanding of gender roles. So in that sense, the accessibility to the book was, was definitely uh, the main intention. Yeah. And I, I think that's super important, especially in, in today's sort of backlash against intellectualism in certain ways. Um, and you, you kind of touched on a few examples from uh, is one of your beginning chapters, which is about gen- language and gender in media and advertising. And the, the first example I kind of wanted to bring up that I found sort of interesting was um, as described by Levy in your book, uh, this idea of raunch culture um, and femininity. I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, in, in the history of you know, feminist ideas, um, the 90s produced some interesting challenges with the rise of girl culture and that the empowered, the empowered girl, um, the empowered woman would uh, you know, be more like Spice Girl. She would be uh, raunchier, grittier, and kind of a sex in the city kind of way of being. And this was seen and understood as a way women would be liberated. I think what um, Ariel Levy and others have been noticing is that it hasn't it hasn't uh, made the world a more just, even, equal place. In some ways, it's worked against women and continued to position them as in a different category altogether than men, and that the raunch culture has disempowered women in significant ways, so that they may be feeling empowered or think that their empowerment is coming from being, you know, raunchy, going to wild parties standing on tables, you know, taking off your tops. But that uh, what the what I think some of the feminist research is suggesting is that it, it is working against women being taken seriously. And uh, it's another way in some ways of oppressing uh, women. So if you see people, regardless of sexuality, gender, you know, religion, skin color, socioeconomic status, etc., if you see people as all... Uh, to be respected, 
then um, you wouldn't want to position yourself in a demeaning in a demeaning role. And I think that's what what uh, some of the problems are with the rise of raunch culture. Um, it hasn't served to empower women in the way that some people were suggesting it it could. Right, and and sort of along a different uh, line of thinking there. You, you talked a little bit about sort of in the 1990s, this rise of like men's lifestyle magazines and this discourse of the new man. And how did this discourse uh, in advertisements and these actual pieces of text um, have to do with this, uh, what seems to keep coming up over and over again, sort of our current uh, so-called crisis in masculinity? Well, the crisis of masculinity is something that's talked about in education, particularly in September when people are going back to school. <laughs> and it comes up as sort of, you know, this lament that there had been a golden age when when powerful men were being educated in a certain way and that we've lost that. I think if you look historically, though, that has been the case for probably 150 years of public education. Uh, we certainly keep records of that in Canada, and you can see similar uh, stories from the 1930s, 1940s, saying the same kind of thing, that there's a crisis in masculinity. Um, and it, it just is an interesting thing to actually reflect on, because if one of the criticisms in education, for example, is that, uh, you know, they're all, there are too many women teaching primary grades, and we need more men because there's a crisis of masculinity. Well, you know, that was definitely the case in the 1910s as well, and uh, that more women were teaching uh, small children. So there didn't, somehow there seems to be a, a, a false memory that that was okay, but somehow now um, it's a, a challenge to masculinity itself. So I think that that's, that would be an example of um, something that just needs more, more thought and, and sort of getting a clearer sense of the reality helps, helps us all to be a bit more, um, uh, I don't know, so responsible for you know what we say and what we think about other people. So, um, so in that sense, masculinity has been an interesting one. The other thing that is is inescapable is the development of a knowledge uh, economy where everything is credentialized and um, you need to be educated, as opposed to when it was you know industrial revolution times or the um, when it was all based on agriculture where the men were used in factories and used for their physical power. You know, they were working in mines, for example. Well, now those, those uh, bases of economics have, have closed down so that you need a different kind of man. Um, and then now what do we do with the, the change in the socioeconomic geopolitical world? So the, the, you know, the one may, the one way of being like the Marlboro man um, is, is not going to cut today's world in the same way that extremes in femininity um, won't get you very far either. So if you're, if you're looking for a just world and uh, lives that are fully flourishing, you would want to um, open up the possibilities to be who you are and to fit into a kind of new culture of, of the times. You know, I think you've talked a lot about education, which I, I will always appreciate since that's my area of study as well. But um, you do have a chapter on language and gender and education. And 
you know, you astutely point out uh, sort of uh, Walker Dean's line that all classrooms are um, sites of some gender struggle, right? And you kind of you kind of use uh, the term hidden curriculum to sort of describe how this happens and how, as you put it, teachers are gender coaches and classrooms are gender stages, right? So could you describe to the listeners sort of what is the hidden curriculum and then how do teachers play that role of coach and how do classrooms become those stages? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, most uh, sociologists uh, today would say that the um, the larger theories of sociology that we kind of, you know, Marxism, um, Durkheim's ideas, they have been grand theories, but today's sociology is concerned with more face-to-face interactions, more um, neo-Marxist view of what's going on regarding power and um, how, how power is... Um, understood how it is played and uh, how it continues to exist in certain circles while not um, appearing in other circles. So the hidden curriculum is not a conscious thing. It's an unconscious thing um, on the part of, uh, well, it's, it's a subconscious thing based on our assumptions of either gender or race. And that those two sites where power is um, intention between different groups, minority groups, majority groups, um, outsiders, um, insiders, that the hidden curriculum is the this, this small, tiny moments that happen that reveal assumptions. Uh, so some of it could be as small as, okay, boys line up here, girls line up here, boys can take the soccer balls, uh, and girls you know, can take the basketballs for today's recess, or, or something um, you know, that on the surface is absolutely innocent looking, but there's a message and the message isn't something that the teacher is necessarily conscious of, but it is sending it out that there's a distinction, clear distinction between boy and, boys and girls. And that, you know, that's just going to be reinforced. So when I say that the teacher is a gender coach, it is in these ways, in a, in a hidden kind of way, no one goes out to plan to, um, uh, differentiate between in that way. In fact, I've talked with talked with many teachers who will say, "Oh, you know, I treat them all the same. You don't have to worry about sexism with me. Like I get it, and I treat them all the same." Uh, that doesn't really answer the question, and it's rarely true anyway. So, I, I do find the hidden the hidden curriculum a really interesting aspect to what goes on in schools. Um, and schools are the, the like the universal institution in the West. So at a time we might have you know um, been more associated with religious communities and the church, uh, schools serve that purpose now. And so what's going on in schools uh, is really significant. So people would say, and I would agree, that it's a microcosm of what's going on in society. And in this way, it, it reveals our gendered assumptions, um, but it also rehearses them <laughs> so that they continue and that continuation um, makes something that has been been done repeatedly, like rituals and um, and such, appear to be the, the normal way to be. When when that, if you were to really explore it, it's been normalized. And so here's here's a, an example on, on the distinction between the terms. So I lived for ten years in the UK, and I uh, took driving lessons because they drive on the left. Uh, and I didn't think I would ever get that figured out. And for a long time, I would have to chant this to myself as I was driving, keep left, keep left, keep left, keep left, until 
one morning I was driving into work and realized I'd actually been quite engaged um, in what was on the talk radio that morning and hadn't even thought about it until I was pulling into the parking lot and realized, oh, uh, I didn't even think about it. And then when I returned um, to Canada, I had to say, keep right, keep right, keep right, until I actually got acclimatized to that. So that's a, a tiny example between what I mean by normal versus normalized. So there's not a normal way to drive on the left or the right uh, as much as there is a normalized. So through the repeated actions, this becomes seen as what is normal. But it's it's of its context. It's of its location and place. Yeah, and I think that's really important to think about when we're talking about sort of how language and gender sort of work in tandem. And sticking with schools for... Oh, one further question, but um, you talk about sort of how schools and school officials talk about sex in schools. So how do we talk about it? Or do we talk about it? It's another question along with that. Well, I've been in teacher education for a long time now, and I think I could safely say that um, there's not a lot of talk about it. And lately in, in some of the Canadian provinces and school districts, the talk about it has actually become very um, inflamed by discourse and language regarding uh, what should be taught and who decides and um, at what age certain things should be taught or, or not taught. But there's not there you don't take a course in in university or in teacher education programs on how to teach sex ed, or very rarely even on gender um, in a in a system systematic way. Um, so it, it will be tucked into a sociology of education course for sure, but rarely do you find like a, like a full credit gender and education or gender, sex and education or sexualities and education um, as maybe something pretty important that, that inflects the entire educational experience. Therefore, you know, we should be really thinking about this, including how we talk about sex and the assumptions that go into what we do say. Um, knowing that we're in schools, uh, in our language use, in, in who we are, we are reflecting, reflecting our culture, but also to continue rehearsing it by our very uh, embodiment of the ideas. Yeah, and I, I think that it's one of the things that most folks have an experience, you know, attending sort of a sex ed type of, you know, class period or one-off sort of, uh, you know, lesson, but rarely, you know, do you find that it's universal or talked about in the same way. So it's, it's always interesting to see sort of, you know, like you said, that it's not really talked about in any sort of training. So it's, that's sort of how we get to the, the mystery point of how it's talked about in practice. Um, and moving on to the next chapter you have on gender and language in the workplace, um, sort of another, how do we talk about it question, but how do we talk about the glass ceiling? Because that is certainly sort of a, a buzzword or buzz phrase, if you will. And, um, I think, I think you point out that it's talked about in a very interesting way. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think to discuss glass ceiling, you really have to understand what microaggressions are in the workplace um, regarding power. So when we talk about women hitting the glass ceiling, it's it's really the top of where they can go 
this was used a lot in the campaign um, of Hillary Clinton, that this was going to crack, you know, the remaining glass ceiling if a woman could become president of the United States. The fact that women have become leaders of other countries around the world, um, I think, is really interesting, particularly for the Americans to think about. But that there is um, uh, only so far a woman can go before um, the powers that be, um, you know, close in. And the microaggressions, they, I find it really fascinating. I, I live with them every day myself. So it could be as simple as, uh, you know, laughing at a sexist joke. Um, on the one hand, it's just, a, you know, two seconds and what was the big deal. But, but when it uh, undermines the full respect of a woman, for example, um, the, that, 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 is a, that comes at a personal cost for her. And if she's in a position of leadership, uh, it's a reminder that um, she's contentious in the sense that she has a very you know narrow way she can be to be accepted in that particular workplace. And um, you know each workplace is its own universe in so many ways. So it, how far a woman could go, um, it depends on so many factors of the, the how you know what the workplace is like. The other thing that's interesting is. Um, you know, there's a, an expression that if you can't see it, you can't be it. And this has been taken up by feminists, and quite rightly so, that if we, girls, young young women, don't see women in positions of power, then they're unlikely to consider them for themselves. Um, and that would explain a whole bunch of uh, patterns. You know, more women went into teaching because more of their mothers were teachers. It was seen as a legitimate uh, option for for women, uh, I myself wanted to be a teacher, um, probably for similar reasons. It was easily opened to me as a profession, um, and so it, you know, it was yeah the one a presented idea that seemed pretty um, doable. But if you put women in um, other industries, uh, computers, um, any of those STEM subjects, subject areas, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, the microaggressions that keep her from fully flourishing and the glass ceiling that seems to um, prevent her from seeing others in positions of leadership, other women in positions of leadership, influences how far a woman can go. So so when we say, well, um, yeah, we need more women in tech, uh, that's going to take a certain kind of uh, understandings about how it is that people are... are um, able to consider it um, and some there's some interesting studies that come out of guidance offices in schools and high schools uh, how often the um, the counselor um, suggests aspects or um, different areas of study based on the gender so and you can just sort of imagine uh, when someone's coming in trying to decide what to do after grade 12 um, and what is then presented as reasonable options for them. That's, that can be very powerful. So I think that those are two aspects of the, of the glass ceiling that uh, we really have to reckon with, um, that there are these micro aggressions that just keep reminding everyone that there's a place for women and it's not at the top and that there is not a lot of role modeling for young women in positions where real power is found. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, the captains of industry. I mean, we get we get more of them, and they're featured as as role models. 
um, you get, you know, the top 40, under 40, those kinds of um, media images that are meant to be inspiring to young women. And, and in many cases they are, but they're rare and you don't see them on a, on a regular basis. Um, and I, yeah, that's something to really understand then about workplace dynamics and the microaggressions of a particular context and, and what, it, what, what the personal cost is for a woman. Yeah, and in, in a similar vein, uh, I thought it was interesting how you point out um, how conversations on leadership in the workplace occurred in gender ways. So, and, and that's certainly very timely with some of the books that you mentioned that have come out on sort of women in leadership roles. Um, so I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that in relation to, uh, you know, that talk on the glass ceiling as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, it is, it is interesting. Uh, there's almost, well, there is a, co- a contradiction or a paradox within the discussion here of women in the workplace, because on the one way, on the one hand, you could say a woman offers a woman's way of knowing and a woman's way of seeing it. So we need more women because we need that perspective, <laughs> which, uh, in many ways is an essentialist way of seeing women. So right, in some ways right. it's it undermines a sense of a woman as a full person by suggesting it, um, even though it's used as a way to get women in positions of leadership. So it, um, so yeah, the way um, even that is understood, I think. So there's, the paradox is that on the one hand, we want a woman's way of seeing it because it offers a different perspective. On the other way, we don't want to say, on the other hand, we don't want to say a woman has an entirely different way of thinking and speaking um, because then that limits other things about the experience. So it's a conundrum. Uh, there's no doubt about it, which is certainly why I find it endlessly fascinating. I mean, the more things I've explored, the more things there are to explore. And uh, that would be one. I mean, workplace is really interesting, the type of workplace and uh, the, the climate of the workplace and uh, the, the people involved and, and who's, who's got the power and who is empowering the others. Uh, we do see that you know, women will sometimes get the positions of power and then they, they are almost seen as responsible for all other women who might want positions of power. So there's this there's an extra burden as well um, on, on women. So it's, um, it's, it's an interesting paradox to live, to live within. Yeah, for sure. And, Speaking of power, your next chapter talks about uh, gender and language and religion. And I thought one of the interesting things that you point out is that, you know, this sort of God as male or gender in the creation story uh, aspect of religion. So uh, how are the premises of the major religions shaping how gender is talked and thought about in religious communities? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the male if, if is seen as um, uh, the godhead is is often uh, I would say in the major um, religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the ones I explore in the book, uh, the god is male, and um, the tradition would put it there quite easily, and it's accepted. You know, our Father who art in heaven. It's it's in that sense. It's in, it's inflected. Um, what that has done, I think, to women is uh, put them in an awkward position. For one thing, what does what is what is the calling to faith if it's gendered? So certain things are said in the holy scriptures 
that uh, are directions for all of us, you know, um, be good to your neighbor, for example, and that's, you know, to men and women. And then there are other passages that are a bit more um, obscure. Is that said to men uh, or is it said to everyone? So in that part is, is um, gets complicated. So if you say that God is always male, that, that, that offers a certain kind of being um, with masculine traits, even though particularly in the, in the, the, the Christian scriptures, which I know better, um, there are many imageries where God is presented as a woman, um, a mother hen gathering her chicks, for example, and um, taking, taking those to her breast. So the, it's not that, um, that the religion necessarily is sexist, but the way the religions have been uh, lived out, the lived experiences of these religions have inflected the experience to be very, very uh, gendered, for sure. And I find that the um, evangelical uh, gendered roles quite interesting to think about in light of uh, interpretation of certain scriptures and what how they're understood to mean uh, devotion. Um, it, it was it's interesting work. I find it um, uh, complicated because. Certainly, the world over, there are more people who are religious than not. You wouldn't think that living in the West. But it's it's not a, an incidental part of being, um, you know, a human being. People take their faith very seriously. And uh, their understanding of, I think, gender and the patriarchy that has often been the, the, um, the way, the time uh, passages have been interpreted, I think that has to be um, kind of reckoned with. Uh, certainly, you know, fe- uh, feminist theology has come up with some interesting and probably important correctives on uh, the interpretation of certain scriptures. Yeah, and I, I think that will be um, something that is, you know, continued to talk about as as those, uh, you know, disciplines all sort of intersect uh, in the coming years for sure. Um, and moving on to your uh, last chapter, sort of like last chapter before the conclusion about gender and language in relationships. And I thought what was really interesting uh, that you pointed out is that language shapes the way that especially young people experience friendship. And when, when I was reading that, it really struck me, you know, and sort of like mirrored a lot of sort of my own experiences. So I, I wondered if you could share sort of what you wrote in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so what we find in relationships are different expectations um, and what they do to our relationships. Um, often young young girls are, are in relation to each other and they connect with each other through self-revelation, for example. Um, they share their secrets uh, very early on and that becomes the basis for the friendship that there's been self-disclosure. Um, that that comes that comes with the two-edged sword there on the one hand you know great you can be real with someone but on the other hand it requires a kind of self-disclosure to continue the relationship in any meaningful way and that can be quite demanding and can be hurtful if that self-disclosure comes back on you um that's an interesting one and the 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 stereotype that boys are you know all about um doing physical activities together that is also problematic because it, it sort of you bump into that boys will be boys you know um 
as if they're only <laughs> interested in doing things and that more intimate relationships are kind of, you know, off off the um, agenda when it comes to their relationships. So I, f- I find that a really interesting one in um, the childhood friendships and then in adolescence, how that shifts and how uh, sexuality becomes a, a, an important card in, in that game. I also thought it was interesting to think about personal relationships in uh, families as well and how there is, again, certain expectations that women are from one planet and men are from the other. And so women are from Venus. So, yeah, they're more concerned about love and nurturing and uh, and that men from Mars, you know, they're more they're more uh, capable of you know, domineering and things like that. And the one example I give in the book um, where the woman is talking about um, their child at school and you know, you know, Sally's having problems um, and that the mother's worried. The father's response is, well, that happens in schools. So the father goes to a generalized statement that is larger than the intimacy. And I think that that, that uh, division of who we are in our relationships uh, prevents, a, 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 prevents a deeper intimacy then. If we have to perform certain ways and see the world in certain ways to be in relationship with each other. Um, and I, I find that a challenge. Yeah. And I, I think too, uh, this is sort of part of relationships that I think if people were to give their first inclination of what they think of, when you talk about language and gender, this might come up, but I think you write about it in a way that is still sort of a, uh, needed and refreshing take, but I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how um, politeness and complimenting end up being gendered. Mm-hmm. Well, most compliments are given by women to women, <laughs> and uh, that tells us something about what what we know we're up against. So, you know, you, I, I like your new hairstyle, for example, um, a personal comment from a friend uh, that's meant to be affirming. But it also, again, reveals that how, in this case, how a woman looks is being noted and that that's really central and that that is the way to affirm a woman instead of other attributes about her that should be more compelling than what she looks like and that, that what she looks like is only problematize the life of a woman to be um, concerned only about how they how they look and how they're perceived um so that's one thing about the the compliments that i i find interesting when you when you apply it to even um uh if you watch different talk shows and newscasts and see how um the compliments are played out in that public arena you'll see a similar thing. So the woman is complimented often on how she, how she looks. Um, and even by other female commentators, uh, it's interesting to watch it because it, on the one hand, yeah, it appears like it's complimenting. So this is affirming and encouraging, but it comes at a cost. Um, and politeness is so interesting to think about what an interruption means or what was it, what a, a one time was considered the female ways of speaking that now we would see as maybe powerless ways of speaking. Maybe that's more accurate, but uh, what was, what was sort of um, what propelled a lot of applied linguists to think about would be politeness regarding uh, back channel support, which is what women slash the more powerless <laughs> do is nod their head and go, mm-hmm, 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 as someone's speaking, uh, not 
to agree with them, but to encourage them to continue to speak. So that's, you know, that would be one example of being polite, but um, it can be interpreted, interpreted in different ways. Or we see that when women are interrupted, even women in positions of power, if a woman is interrupted, there's a tendency for her to stop talking and allow the interruption to happen. Um, or people with less power in the situation behave that way. Uh, or the more powerful one can interrupt and continue to speak because they've interrupted. That's one. Um, also the different use of um, tag questions. So someone might say, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Um, this is a, this is a polite thing. It's um, considering the other person. But it also it could set up a powerlessness. But what I think is interesting is that as we as, as things shift and we become more aware, I would say that, that those presuppositions have actually shifted considerably so that it's considered polite behavior no matter who is doing it, um, that even the powerful recognize that politeness can be very persuasive and um, rudeness um, you know, undermines real authority. So it gets interesting. And I think that in that way, uh, applied linguistic research has been really helpful in understanding the workplace, understanding our intimate relationships, understanding the way the media and technology and computer games and um, blog posts, Facebook, that it just inflects our, our lived experience in ways that we uh, unless we're, we've been giving it some thought, it just goes past us as if it's normal when that, that has to be taken a little bit more seriously because of the socialization, the power of that. If it's, if it's you know, subconscious, then, um, th- then we, we can't really control our own, our own lives in the way that awareness uh, allows us to do. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you, you know, coming on the show and I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I kind of had a few just wrap up questions. And the first one might be a, a little bit of a, a doozy of a last question because of how sort of thorough your book is uh, regarding language and gender and these various aspects of one's life. But if you had to have, if you had one takeaway you wanted people to come away your book with what what do you think that takeaway would be that the human experience is uh, a wonderful thing that uh, is larger than gender roles and we do each other a great service by allowing allowing that to come through our humanness i think that's a great takeaway and if if people are really uh, taken with your book, which I, I really do think they will be once they read it. Um, do you have any other or further book recommendations that you could give our listeners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some wonderful books out there now uh, in a similar kind of vein, uh, particularly coming out of the, the UK. So Caitlin Moran is writing some really interesting things. The New Feminists are writing um, more more honest reflections on how gender impacted their lives. So they're coming out with more kind of memoirs that that problematize 
uh, the way gender has limited gender identity, gender performance, gendered expectations have limited their lives. You can you can definitely find them uh, in any sort of uh, Amazon search. And if you're interested in more academic uh, studies, there there are um, some really good books out there, particularly the anthologies of gender and language. Um, Janet Holmes and Miriam Meyerhoff have the Handbook of Language, Gender, Sexuality. Uh, that's a terrific uh, addition to anyone's library. Um, out of the UK, we got um, uh, Helen Stonson, Jane Sunder- Sutherland, uh, writing some really interesting things on gender and language and research methodologies. And Van Leeuwen is an interesting one. Um, she wrote, What is Authenticity? Uh, that was in 2001, but it's an interesting read on this uh, this this level of um, who are we, who do, who do we want to be, and uh, what our our actions and our words, our use of language reveal. Yeah, those are all really excellent recommendations. And I guess my final question is: Are you working on anything now? Do you have any projects in the works currently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm working on a manuscript called The Compassionate Educator. Um, it's an edited collection with other uh, Canadian researchers looking at inclusion and diversity in Canadian schools, but uh, sites of uh, potential, well, sites of opportunity, but also sites of tension and how um, compassion um, for ourselves and for others, the parents, the students, um, can make a real difference in a learning experience. And again, allowing for more growth of, of us as you know, human beings. Well, that sounds great. And once that comes out, you know where to find us here on the the New Books Network. And hopefully we can talk to you about that as well. But again, uh, we were talking with Dr. Allison Jewell about her new book, Speaking Up, Understanding Language and Gender. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, well, thank you for the conversation. I enjoy it very much.